Welcome to Mysteries from Owl Creek Press. Today, two stories. First, I'll take you down under and back in time to 1966 for the largest mass UFO sighting in Australian history. Then we'll flash forward to 1974 and a time slip in Washington State. Well, in 1966, over 300 children and staff at a Melbourne school reportedly witnessed multiple UFOs silently flying through the sky. Over the years, there have been differing reports about the exact details of what happened. On April 6th at Westall High School, such as people claiming there were three saucer-like objects, while some thought there was just one. In the 50-plus years since the incident occurred, there has been worldwide speculation about what people saw, with some believing it was absolutely an alien encounter and others pointing a finger at the government testing new technology. Throughout all the years of speculation, there has been one particularly interesting piece of audio that's been greatly overlooked. An American physicist known for his research into UFOs, Dr. James E. McDonald, conducted an interview with a science teacher from the Westall School, Andrew Greenwood, who witnessed the event. McDonald then recorded himself describing their meeting and the creepy details Greenwood gave about his experience. Greenwood told McDonald the UFO was first brought to his attention by a hysterical child who ran into his classroom and told him there was a flying saucer outside. McDonald says, according to the recording, Greenwood thought the child had become deranged or something, so he didn't take any notice. But when the child insisted that this object was in the sky, he decided to go out and have a look for himself. When Greenwood went outside, he noticed a group of children looking toward the northeast area of the school grounds, and as he approached them, he claims he saw a UFO hovering close to a power line. Greenwood described it as a round silver object about the size of a car with a metal rod sticking up in the air. According to McDonald, who talked to Greenwood, Greenwood then told him that five planes came and surrounded the object as more people began gathering to watch the scene before them. He called it the most amazing flying he had ever seen in his life. The planes were doing everything possible to approach the object, and he said how they avoided a collision will never be known. Every time they got too close to the object, it would slowly accelerate, then rapidly accelerate, then move away from them and stop. Then they would take off after it again, and the same thing would happen. This game of cat and mouse reportedly went on for 20 minutes, and by this time, Greenwood said 350 children and staff were watching. Suddenly, the UFO shot away and vanished within seconds. And it was at this point that the headmaster came out and ordered everyone to go back to class. Over the years, there were reports that the government tried to cover up the incident and stop witnesses from talking. But Greenwood claimed it was the headmaster that first tried to squash discussion of the event. He gave the school a lecture, told the children they would be severely punished if they talked about this matter, and told the staff they could lose their jobs if they mentioned it at all. The teacher claimed the headmaster was so scared, though, and disturbed by the incident, that he refused to come outside until the object in question, the UFO, was gone. When the Royal Australian Air Force contacted the headmaster, he told them to go jump in a lake. He didn't know anything about what they were asking him. 
There have been claims from several witnesses that sharply dressed men in black suits visited them and warned the school, children, and staff from speaking about the incident. This lines up with a few experiences Greenwood had when he tried to speak with other witnesses about what he saw. At the time of seeing the UFO, he was a complete skeptic himself. He has never even considered the possibility of their existence. When he asked the physical education teacher to describe what she had seen herself so that he could compare it with his own observation, she just wouldn't say anything. Greenwood then reportedly spoke to one of the older students who described the event in great detail exactly as he had seen it. But when he spoke to her again half an hour later, she wouldn't say a word. Greenwood didn't think it had anything to do with the headmaster's threats, as no one usually took him seriously, and he knew for a fact that the student he spoke with didn't attend the meeting where the headmaster had made the threats. Well, MacDonald's description of his interview with Greenwood offers a rare insight into the events from the eyes of someone who was an adult at the time. And there continues to be speculation over what actually happened, and the site of the encounter has been turned into a memorial park to reflect the 1966 Westfall UFO incident. And that is the largest mass sighting of a UFO in Australia. Now let's flash forward to 1974, to what I call Washington State's time slip. It was late June 1974, on a warm summer day in a small town just outside of Seattle, Washington. A party for the graduating high school senior class was underway. Several local bands were brought in for the special catered affair. Many of the students' parents attended as chaperones. The day was cloudless when the festivities began at three o'clock. They'd continue until midnight. Tables were overflowing with food, were set up on the expansive green lawn that stretched out in front of the old Hickok Manor. The mansion, the Hickok Manor, was constructed in 1909 by William B. Hickok, a retired steamship captain. He remained single and opened the nine-room, 15,000-square-foot residence to retired and displaced seamen. When he died in 1950, he deeded the mansion to the town. It was immediately put on the market, and it was maintained in all its majesty for 20 years. There were no takers. In 1972, city fathers realized that it costs too much to keep it up, and so for the next 10 years it remained abandoned and the grounds unkept. In 1973, the school district approached the city students would restore and maintain the grounds and upgrade the kitchen if they could use it for graduation ceremonies each year. The council was only too happy to have the giant mansion restored to less than an eyesore, even if that only included the kitchen and surrounding grounds. While the bands were set up for the graduation celebration on a huge wraparound front porch, only enough electricity was brought in to operate a kitchen, so the bands brought in generators. Enough food and non-alcoholic beverages to last to midnight were stored in an expansive multi-room cellar connected to the kitchen by a narrow servant's hall that descended nearly two flights. Walter Schmidtke was student body president, Sally Holcomb was valedictorian, and the two had been going steady since their freshman year. Each was eagerly anticipating finding carnal knowledge somewhere in the old Hickok mansion. Once the festivities were well underway, they were sure they could slip away and never be missed. 
Walter was friends with the owner of the catering service that was operating a kitchen, who said he would look the other way if the seniors wanted to meet in the cellar. At nine o'clock, blazing lights set up by the local fire department lit up the front lawn and the food tables. The bands provided their own floodlights, and Sally crossed a dimly lit kitchen as the owner of the catering service busied himself at the sink with dirty cooking utensils. When she opened the undersized door that exposed a narrow hall, Walter was waiting. They briefly embraced and ran down the stairway until it opened onto the cellar. The caterer had said that when he stocked the cellar with food and drink, he discovered that at the end of the short hall was what was left of a small servant's room. When the teens arrived at the end of the hall, they found that door locked. They couldn't open it. Walter pounded fiercely on the hinges and the latch, but still the door wouldn't open. But when a voice boomed out, Who's there? They'd had enough and ran back the way they had come, but couldn't find the stair. What they found partway down the hall was a coal chute. With a sense of relief, they scrambled up and out of sight of the mansion. But when they came around to the front, the lawn was lit with torches. Men and women were walking across the lawn, holding glasses filled with an amber liquid. Horse-drawn wagons were pulling up to the porch. As they made their way around toward the kitchen, they passed men staggering drunk. Women in the shadows were raising their skirts for the sailors. When they finally stepped into the kitchen, they found it being worked by Asians. Walter half-dragged Sally into the narrow hall, wanting to retrace their steps, but she'd have none of it. She'd wait. He swore he'd come back for her, but he never did. At midnight, when it had become apparent that the teens were missing, parents, teachers, and students began a search. Sally Holcomb was found crouching just inside the entrance to the narrow hall that led to the cellar. Yet the caterer said, He'd been down the hall a dozen or more times replenishing refreshments, and he'd never seen her. She was in shock and remained hospitalized for over 35 days. When friends and neighbors came to visit, it slowly came out what had happened and what she and Walter had seen when they came out of the coal chute. Walter Schmidtke was never found. Sally moved in with her stepmother when she got out of the hospital. The local paper came out with her story. Six months after leaving the hospital and moving in with her stepmother, she received a visitor. He walked with a limp, slightly bent, and looked vaguely familiar to her. He presented her with a driver's license and a birth certificate that showed he was Walter Schmidtke, born 1879. Of course, she couldn't believe him and accused the old man of a hoax. But Walter shook his head and told her he had no memory of his whereabouts for the past 75 years. But when he read the paper containing her story, something was triggered. He smiled and shook his head. He told her his last words before he ran down the hall, that he would be back for her. Sally visited Walter in a nursing home sometime later in Seattle, for two years actually, until his passing. She married a real estate mogul some years later, and convinced him to buy the Hickok Mansion out from under the wrecking crew that had bid on the place. With husband in tow, she made her way down the narrow, crumbling stair to the cellar, then to the end of the hall, where the door was forcefully removed. In shock and horror at the contents of the room, she turned and buried her face in her husband's chest, for in the corner of a the room was a small skeleton wearing what was left of her graduating classmate's jacket.
Now, this story is true, but retold only after I signed a non-disclosure document that stipulated not to use the name of the town or the individual Sally and Walter. The Hickok Mansion, again, not real name, was restored and is now a Washington State Historic Site. The room at the end of the hall was sealed. And there you have your two stories. This is Kit Crumb. Be sure to listen tomorrow for more of the strange and unexplained.